had one shot, one chance, one opportunity to make it as an undrafted free agent with the Cowboys. Shark Tank's a real deal. You walk out there, they only know your name. We probably 20x the business overnight. You know, that first couple weeks, the first month was more like the 50x. How about going to the University of Arizona and trying to be disciplined? Or like trying to walk <laughs> out? You're talking about one of the biggest party schools in the world with the most beautiful women in the world. Welcome to Behind the Rides podcast hosted by the Perina Brothers. My name is Angelo and I'm joined by my brothers and business partners, Lucho and Valentino. On this show, we will speak to successful local, national and global entrepreneurs, as well as discuss lessons we've learned in our 15 year career building a nine figure organization. We're in the middle of our journey now and want to share with you all the wins, losses, lessons and learned behind the rise. So everybody, we got a special guest today, a good friend of ours, Mr. Chris Gonkowski. Welcome to the show, Chris. What's up, guys? Great to see you, brother. So I'm going to give a quick little bio here about Chris. So Chris is a former NFL player turned entrepreneur. Chris is now the CEO of Ice Shaker. Chris is in the is the middle of the five Gronkowski brothers, uh, known as being a family of athletes. Four brothers played in the NFL, and the oldest brother was drafted in the MLB, which is literally ridiculous. Yeah, it's <laughs> ridiculous. That's absolutely. I we, I went Division three, and he went Division like one A, and I thought we were like the fucking. <laughs> The cream of the crop. Um, Chris attended University of Arizona and earned an accounting degree from Eller College of Management. He went on to play in the NFL for the Dallas Cowboys, Indianapolis Colts, and Denver Broncos. In 2016, he put his entrepreneurial skills to test and started uh, the company Ice Shaker. Ice Shaker is well known for appearing on ABC's Shark Tank and closing a deal with Mark Cuban and Alex Rodriguez. The company makes premium drinkware products to help you live an active and healthy lifestyle. So as I say that, let me take a sip out of my beautiful ice shaker bottle right here where everything is staying cold and refreshing. They are, they are the best bottles on the, on the planet. Truly unbiasedly. I was a, I was a client before I even became a friend. Uh, you can go out on like a hundred, hundred degree day and with like cold water in there and it'll stay cold. Doesn't matter the, the outside temperature. Yeah. I was just going to say that. So when I, I actually left a bottle of, um, so if I know I'm going to the gym, right, and I have like a protein shake and I'm going to go into the gym, like I'll pre-shake it before, I'll leave it in my car and then drink it like later in the day. Like even if it's 100 degrees, if this, Still you know, it stays like piping cold, you know? <laughs> piping cold? Is piping cold a thing? <laughs> like very, very cold is basically what it comes down to. So yeah. congrats, Chris. A great product. We love it. We're customers. We big fans. I appreciate it, man. That's my new quote. Keeps your drink. That's it. What, piping cold in a hot car. <laughs> you want to know the one of the most low key part of the product? That's that's the key that makes the whole thing. It's this, the handle. Yeah, it's the handle. Without the yeah, handles, handle. makes it so easy. And I love the half gallons. I'm a big half gallon guy. Half gallons are legit, man. Especially when it's really hot out, like it is here in Texas now. And then uh, you're gonna leave the house for a while. Like you need a lot. You need the water. So half gallons been. Uh, Big time for me, especially now that I'm coaching youth sports and I'm outside a lot more now. Yeah, dude, great, great product and nice innovation on it too. So it's not just you know you're having multiple multiple product lines within the same within the same genre, the same quality. You know, I'm sure it's not easy to have developed that same quality, like the thickness of this product, like the durability into a, a half gallon size. So yeah, huge. I'm good, man. So, so Chris, good. we're going to get into what it grew up, uh, you know, how it was growing up at, at like the one of the most athletic families of, in U.S. history. So <laughs> we're going to get into that. I met your dad. We spent uh, a weekend together before uh, the Super Bowl in Tampa. He's an absolute stud, jacked. You know, if we were talking about horse breeding, he'd probably be the stud <laughs> I would I would breed with. Yeah. Um. So like, you know, is it nature or is it nurture? Like, how, how did that happen? Like, I know. You know, I've heard legendary stories about the competitiveness and stuff, but why don't you give us a little insight of what it was like growing up as a Gronkowski brother? Yeah, man. Um, mayhem is a good word to ex- explain it. Um, we had a house in which, well, first, it was, I mean, it was a small house. There was, we all had to split bedrooms. We all had bunk beds. Uh, looking back on it, man, like little tiny rooms where you just walk in, there's a bunk bed and one dresser. That was it. Uh, but we didn't know any different, man. It was awesome for us. We'd fight over the top bunk. Uh, we had absolutely no decorations in our house. Like growing up, I didn't realize that until like I went over to other people's houses and, you know, there was stuff hung on the wall and, uh, you know, there was nice end tables. 
and all kinds of decorations throughout the house. We had nothing. Like we had a couch uh, and a TV, and that that was it because everything else was either turned into a weapon or uh, was broken at that point. So uh, that's kind of how it was, man. Like all day, every day, uh, we competed in everything from you know backyard baseball. We played made up games in our basement. Uh, just on a cement floor, you know, we put up wooden boards to check each other through the boards. Uh, you know, we competed over who could eat more. You know, when, when we started getting to the age where we could lift, it was all about, you know, who could lift more, uh, who was faster, who was stronger. So uh, all day, every day became a competition, not just between the five brothers, but also between all of our friends as well. We kind of had this really cool neighborhood where everyone on the street kind of had a, a son around our, our same age. And, um, you know, in Buffalo, like there's no fences. You just walk in between yards. You kind of just meet up. You start, you know, playing tag, playing backyard football, playing really anything. Um, and you just walk over to your neighbor's house anytime and just start playing. So uh, we always had us five brothers, but then also like, you know, three, four, five, six friends over as well. So if you couldn't beat your older brother, you try to beat your older brother's friends in, in everything they did. And then, of course, everything kind of became a brawl at the end of the day. You know, you just fought if you won. Uh, if you fought, if you lost, like no matter what happened, it was kind of like, you know, it, we're going to fight no matter what at the end of the game. So, uh, absolute mayhem. <laughs> That's awesome. How my parents did it, but somehow, uh, kind of, kind of survived all that and just made us tougher and made us highly competitive in everything we did. So where did like, you know, like, was your dad an athlete? Like, did he put it in like maybe like Gordy? Cause he was the oldest, right? Like, did he put it in him like in sports and everyone kind of just followed in line or was he pushing him at a young age? Like, how did yeah, that my happen? Dad, my dad played college football. So he played at the university of Syracuse. Uh, he kind of got a chance to uh, play as a scrub player. He signed a contract that he used to hang on the wall. He used to hang it on the wall in his office. He was super proud of it. I think he signed a one week contract with the bills at one point. And uh, awesome. ever since all the brothers made it to the league, um, I never seen that contract ever again hanging on his wall. But uh, he did. He played. He played college football. Um, he was a lineman. He was an offensive guard uh, back then. He was, you know, uh, he was big at six three, you know, two eighty, and uh, you know, he was, he was benching a house. I think he was benching in the five hundreds uh, when he was Holy playing. Wow. So just, uh, just a beast back in the day. But uh, man, for him, like, and for all of us, it was more like. Hockey and, and baseball were what we started with. Um, you know, our parents put us into those sports. And after that, it was kind of up to us what we wanted to do. Uh, football was never a thing until high school. Um, Gord never played. My dad didn't force us to play football. We weren't this big football family. We didn't grow up playing peewee uh, or a- anything like that. So uh, my brother Dan was a, an absolute beast. He was 6'6", 235 in high school. And he was pretty much forced by all the coaches and uh, kids in his high school to play football. And, um, you know, he went in, he started playing as the starting quarterback. And after I saw him play, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. And, and I wanted to play football as well. And then it kind of just went from there. So, uh, Dan started it all. I started playing. Rob started playing. Youngest brother started playing. Kind of all just went from there. That's awesome. Now, how about like as students? Was like any, any one of you guys like a straight A guy or you just making it through or like how was academics? Yeah, it was, um, it was a mix. We have a great mix in the family. Uh, so our parents did put a big emphasis on school. Um, we actually weren't allowed to go outside and, and play sports or play games or do anything really when we got home from school until we finished our schoolwork for the day. So uh, that was my mom. She, she really did a great job of making sure that everything got done. Uh, so it started with Gord. He was not a, a, an A student by any means. Uh, Dan was... Uh, but an A plus student, um, he went on to get his master's in, in college. I think he was one of the first or maybe the only uh, football player at the University of Maryland to get their master's degree while they're still playing, which is pretty cool to see. That was a, pretty much a straight A student as well. Um, my most famous for going to uh, an official visit to the University of Buffalo, partying until 2 in the morning, and I think it was more like 4 in the morning, taking the SAT at 7 a.m. and uh, missing one question on the math. I ended up getting a 790 out of 800 on the math section. Oh, what? Shit, dude. After pretty much um, doing probably at least 10 keg stands. Uh, so, <laughs> dude, what the hell is that? <laughs> to be transparent, we are not A students no, on this no, side of the table. Like, <laughs> yeah. We're not. Just We're the BC guys. Memory, but, um, yeah, I had the opportunity to go Ivy League. My dad was super excited about it. It was kind of his way to prove to the world that 
his sons weren't just dumb jocks. Um, so I, I was going to the University of Penn. I got accepted in the Wharton Business School and I ended up passing that up for a full, full scholarship to the University of Maryland. Uh, so after me, uh, you have Rob. I call him people smart. Uh, definitely not <laughs> book smart, but people smart for sure. Uh, one of the most impressive things I still think is the fact that you know, he had millions of dollars at the age of 20 and um, you know, to, to be able to control yourself and really manage that and uh, make the decisions that he made at that age takes a lot of, a lot of skill, it takes a, you know, just being extremely smart and he's really good with, with people and with money and making great decisions um, on and off the field. So I give him more of uh, the common sense, people smart uh, over the book smart. But then we had Glenn who had two degrees in college and, you know, very, very smart um, as well. So everyone kind of calls Glenn and I twins. We have a lot of the similar tendencies. That's awesome. You know, that's a great, you would never know. I mean, I know you guys are all smart guys. So I've talked to each one of you guys individually, but just to academically like that, dude, that's ridiculous. Getting one question wrong in the SATs no, on math. That's Especially like, math. That's like fucking, uh, you know, Genius goodwill shit. hunting shit. Like that's like <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. You just you know? need to do 10 keg stands and then go. And, yeah. That was, you know. that was like the Adderall. Dude, I had like a, I remember I had like a, a tutor for like six months, oh like coming to the house every day. And I think I got like a four twenty or something on the, on the yeah. math. So Chris question. So when you were growing up, what were your parents doing for work? Like were they entrepreneurs or were they just, you know, working hard citizens of Buffalo? Yeah. So, uh, my mom probably had the hardest job ever. Um, I call it running a full-time business, which was, uh, feeding us, getting us to school, getting us to every single practice, which actually wasn't even physically possible. So she had to make a full calendar. And then, you know, the crazy part is like, when you actually think about it, you didn't have a cell phone or GPS back then. So uh, she had to pick up the regular phone, call a neighbor, call a coach, uh, call a friend and just say like, Hey, uh, Chris has two practices today. I can't get them to him. Uh, I'll trade you one son uh, of mine for one of yours and I'll drive him if you could drive mine. And she had to do this hmm. with you know five kids, which is absolutely insane. Um, we didn't go out to eat. It was actually pretty much impossible to go out to eat with five boys because we were out of control. Uh, so she cooked. She made every single meal as well. And then you know she was on top of us making sure we got our homework done and all that. So uh, after the third kid, my mom had to start, stop working. So after me, she she gave up working. Uh, still helped out my dad with his business, but my dad was working full time, uh, full time business at a an oil company uh, in Buffalo. And then for six years, he did that while starting his other business as well, selling fitness equipment. So uh, got to watch my dad start a business from the ground up, you know, one store, bring it up to 15 different locations. And um, you know, we grew up helping him pack the trucks, uh, deliver fitness equipment and uh, do whatever we could to, to help back then. So uh, it, was, it was pretty cool times, but uh, definitely, definitely challenging times for my parents as well. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask, ask about that, about, you know, so was it always Gronk Fitness, you know, from when your dad started it? Uh, so we started as, it's, it's still G&G Fitness and Gronk Fitness is a, a branch of it. So he started it uh, over 30 years ago and it was G&G, it was his, him and his brother. Uh, his brother ended up stepping away, I think about a year and a half into it. Uh, but it was, you know, distributing fitness equipment. The business started because he wanted quality fitness equipment for his five boys he went uh, locally in Buffalo, New York, to try to find Olympic grade fitness equipment. Um, he wanted a, a bench that would actually last for himself, but also his five kids. And after searching everywhere, he had to drive uh, over six hours to New Jersey uh, to buy commercial grade fitness equipment. And at that point, he realized that there's an opportunity for it. Uh, he opened up his first store in Buffalo. Yeah, that's awesome. So, you know, I know entrepreneurship, you know, is in your blood, right? I mean, you saw your dad doing it growing up. Um, you know, and it was, it's really something, even when I talked to Gordy, like we spent a lot of time talking with Gordy, you can see that he was, you know, you don't learn that stuff like in school. Like that's kind of like, like born and not born, well, with it, but you're, bre yeah, you're exposed to it at an early age and you could tell he's got a high business IQ, you know, and I'm sure that, you know, we obviously know that you have that as well. So it looks like that was, and that's similar to our story too. Like we grew up in an entrepreneur, uh, household, like our, our parents were entrepreneurs growing up. So we were exposed to that lifestyle early like you you guys were all helping your you know your parents load the trucks and help at the stores 
Um, so, you know, you, you get it, like you understand like what it's like. And for a lot of people, you don't realize because it's second nature to you, but a lot of people, it's just really a foreign, a foreign way of life, you know? Um, so to be exposed to that at an early age is a blessing, I think, you know, yeah. for, for a lot of people. For sure. For sure. You don't realize it at the time, but, uh, I, it's kind of, I mean, I didn't see it that way, but, um, looking back on it definitely helped and really, uh, came into play when I got into business myself and started growing and having questions and trying to figure out how to scale and solve a lot of problems, uh, my dad became kind of that ultimate mentor for me. Uh, he tried to be the ultimate mentor right out the gate, but uh, unfortunately, I didn't listen to anything he said for about the first three years. Uh, and then at that point, I crawled back to him at, at year three and asked him every question I possibly could. And uh, he really helped me take the business to the next level. You know, that's similar to us too. Like our dad was, was like our, still is our mentor. And, um, we've made a ton, ton of mistakes that looking back, if we just listened to him in the beginning, Preventable. I mean, we would be in a much better, you know, spot or we, further along. I mean, I, I could tell you a million times, like we would shoot for the moon right away, you know, and he'd be like, you got to start with your foundation and then, and then go from there. But so many things that we should have, you know, like, I guess that's just the way of life, though. You got to smack your head sometimes before you actually learn. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to have that. So, you know, at what point did you get the idea for Ice Shaker? Obviously, fitness is like an important thing for you. Like, did you see a need like in the marketplace to see a, a need that you were just looking for on your own? Kind of tell us the inspiration behind the product. Yeah, for sure. So um, I was done playing in the NFL. I was here in Dallas. It's hot man it's been hot this summer kind of a summer like this uh in 2016 where i went to the gym it was over 100 degrees outside by the time i got there i had a plastic shaker it was sweating i took a sip of it it was warm tasted awful and uh you know at that time like insulated bottles were taking off you know yeti was coming out like they were exploding on the scene you know hydro flask had been around and um, i used the products so, like i used them at work but i had to go home and i had to get a different bottle because there was nothing that would actually blend or mix powders you know, you, you would take this, you know, insulated cup that had a hole that was tiny and you'd need like a funnel to fill it. And then, you know, you would shake it, but there's nothing to actually blend up the powder. So it was all chunky. And then you'd have to sit there with like a, a special brush trying to clean it. And I'm like, man, this is, this is crazy. Someone has to have made a shaker bottle that's actually insulated. But, um, when I went home, I figured like every other good idea you have, man, like it was, it was going to already be there. But I was shockingly, it wasn't, you know, I jumped on Amazon, wasn't there, wasn't on Google. There was nothing out there that was actually insulated that was made to blend or mix powder. So, uh, that's when it started, you know, started, uh, making prototypes, did whatever I could with my current manufacturers to get something to me. Uh, it took about six months to make it. And, um, I ordered about 10,000 bottles to start with and, uh, just became this side also out of the upstairs of my house. Wow. So, so first, okay. So you came up with the idea, right? You saw that there was a need. Um, you tested the product yourself. It would have to be perfect for what you were looking to do. And then you ordered 10,000 bottles in inventory before you sold anything. Right. So like you, you order them and it's like, let's go, let's go and try to sell these puppies. Yep. And that was, um, yo, know, when my dad stepped in was like, yo, you didn't realize like 10,000 is a lot of product. Right. And, uh, of course I was <laughs> like, man, I'll sell that in like a month. And, uh, it got <laughs> You know, no business plan, no marketing plan, no employee, absolutely nothing. Uh, you know, built a website and, and had Amazon, and that was pretty much it. And I think I sold uh, probably two or three bottles the first week. Uh, made some social posts. You know, thought people would just jump on board because they would see it like I saw it, and you know, I, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And um, you know, didn't realize that it takes a lot more than that. You know, building something from the ground up, you, you have to have customers that you know leaving reviews you have to have some kind of product out there and, and trust in the marketplace and you know when you start fresh you have absolutely nothing so um realized really quickly that it was going to be a lot harder than i thought it was and at that point it just became you know straight hustle mode of doing shows asking friends and families to purchase and leave reviews and if they want purchase i just send them venmo and have them purchase and leave a review anyways <laughs> uh you know I would go on to Amazon and, and just study all the other listings to figure out why they were the first listing. Uh, you know, when you typed in shaker bottle or protein shaker, and I'd go to other categories and do the same thing and, and see why those those were popping up there and see what they were doing, you know, keyword based and photo based and video based and try to do something similar. And um, 
in the first three months, I was able to build it up to about $25,000 in sales just from doing shows and getting to, I got, I got up to about the third spot under Shaker Bottle on Amazon, um, you know, just by kind of mimicking and seeing what other listings were doing uh, with keywords and photos. Uh, so had that at that point, uh, I thought I had a proof of concept and I reached out to Shark Tank to see if I could get on the show. And, um, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to get a response back and they asked for a video submission, um, at that point. So, uh, made a video. It was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I'm ripping off my shirt, just, uh, clipping in touchdowns that I caught and just anything I could possibly think of that I thought was entertaining enough to, to be in a video I threw in there and, uh, submitted the video and, and, and was lucky enough to, um, have them reach me back and say that they wanted to bring me on to the next steps. That's awesome. So, you, so you went on to you know when you submitted that that photo, were you you were still in proof of concept mode? Like you were still at um, twenty five thousand sales. Okay, that's when you were in like the very beginning. So yeah, took a shot. In. So, little side note: we uh, actually almost got onto Shark Take one time. Uh, prob- was probably around the same time. Yeah, two thousand sixteen. Yeah. We might have been on the same thing potentially. So we we had this marinara sauce, which was legendary, and it was. Almost the same thing that that you just said. Like we thought, as soon as we release this thing, it's going to be like lights out, lights out. It was like (laughs) we we kept it like hidden, like nobody could know about it because it was like a unique thing where you know where it was like the base tomato sauce, and on top was all the ingredients: olive oil, basil, parsley, garlic, all that stuff. So then, when when you go home, you step one, you put the ingredients in. It was a kit, and then you boom, you finish cooking, and the sauce was literally like. The best. The best, dude. Like, we still use it to this day at my We'll send house. you a jar. I have some downstairs. We still have, like, a couple bottles floating around from then, you know? So we we flew out to Chicago, went, um, you know, stood in line, dude, for, there was, like, thousands yeah, and thousands. Mean, of, it was me and Angie. Me and him went. We pitched them, right? Then they called us, like, a month later, like, to our surprise. No, like, it was, like, six months later. Yeah, a while later, whatever. They called us. And then we had to uh, submit videos, and then we kept submitting videos every week, and then we got picked to go on the show. We were like, "Holy shit!" It dude. went from like fifty thousand applicants. Okay, then you get to like twenty thousand. Submit another video. Ten thousand. Submit another video. A thousand. We're like, "Holy shit! This is actually going down." Then we sent something else. Five hundred. We're like, "Oh god!" Then they gave us a Shark Tank coach. Right. Yeah, Remember we had that a coach, coach that was like we were talked to because like our pitches are terrible. Like, uh, <laughs> forget what the fuck. It was so bad, dude, on camera. Like, yeah. so bad. It was yeah. so bad. And then it went from two fifty to a hundred. Then they said, "Okay, you're picked. You're going to be leaving in September. You know, we're going to book your flights, whatever." And our coach was excited, and we're all kind of excited. A week before we were supposed to leave, you know, at this point we're panicking. We're trying to like figure out what we're gonna say. Oh yeah, I'm pitch. doing like push-ups. I gotta lose weight. Yeah, yeah. we don't you know, know our like, numbers. We're like, we're gonna get roasted. we're gonna get torn. Yeah. And we're like, Mark Cuban's gonna rip our asses What's apart. Our cost? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we just started this. Thing. Were we even in stores yet? Yeah, we were. We were in a few. A few. They were like, yeah, your margins. You're not making a fucking. We probably one we, cent per we, bottle. We probably <laughs> had like eighty thousand in sales total. And no margins, losing money. Like our numbers were terrible. No plan. No plan. And then uh, all of a sudden, a week before we're supposed to leave, the guy calls us and says, "Hey, you guys got cut. Did did the Sharks decided to cut ten more applicants because they wanted to keep the season shorter?" And we were part well, of that. Well, they said they cut a day of production. Is yeah. what they said. And Same then we got shit. cut. We got nice cut. way of saying you're out, basically. Right. So, our, so that was it. So then we kept the company going for. Another like year, and then we started Nutre, and then and then yeah. stopped that to focus on Nutre. But bottom yeah. line is, we we almost made it. You know, we yeah. could have been on the same the we same episode. The same so episode, tell us like been how, friends back then, huh? I know. <laughs> Dude, was, maybe they could have done a brothers episode, like you guys. Right? Like we could have been like the the appetizer before the main but, entree. But I have, I have, but I, have a, <laughs> I have a question before you guys. You get more into that. When you had twenty five thousand in sales, because in your in that business of like ice shaker bottles and anything, it's it's all shipping. Were you taking orders manually and shipping it out yourself? So we were, yeah, we were taking them through our website, um, and then I was I was manually fulfilling at that time uh, through Amazon as well. So yeah, I was I was come home at night and, and ship them out uh, the upstairs in my house. Was pretty much what I was doing. No, no stores, no like retail stores. It was all direct to consumer. No, absolutely no, no retail at all. Um, 
yeah, I didn't, I didn't have any retail accounts until after Shark Tank. Nice. Yeah. So, okay, so you go on to the show. I saw the episode. It was awesome. You guys are, like, incredibly entertaining, you know? Yeah. So what was it like, like, the actual filming of, of the show? Like, how long was the pitch? You know, how was it like being with, with those guys? Like, was it nerve-wracking? Like, how, how real is it from what we see on TV to actual? Yeah, man. So, I mean, Shark Tank's a real deal. You walk out there, they only know your name, uh, your first name only. That's it. Uh, they don't know the name of the company. They know nothing about the company. They hid my brothers uh, in the back room. Like they didn't want no, like they didn't want any of the staff to know that they were even there because they didn't want the buzz of them being there to get to the sharks. So the the pitch itself, you have two minutes, um, you know, for the initial, and then you open it up to questions for the the sharks. And when you do that, like they they hit you with everything. Like it's not what you see on the show. It's the boring questions that they you know they actually need to know themselves to invest in your company. So. Uh, they hit me on everything from what I did before college, you know, how I got through college, you know, how did I have money in college, what I did afterwards for the first five years, what my family does, you know, where I went to school, what they, what I went to school for. Like they, they really wanted to know everything about me. And, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, like they're putting their real money into it. Um, and what they're really putting into it, that's more valuable than the money is their time. Uh, because they do have to do the due diligence, uh, you know, they have to break it down and make sure that everything you said on the show was legit. They have to put their lawyers, you know, bring their lawyers in and write contracts up. And you know, we had to convert to a, a C Corp. And, you know, it took it took months after we actually filmed the show to close the deal. So uh, the amount of time and effort that's put in by the Sharks is really um, the reason that they want to make sure that they're investing in something that's actually legit. That's going to make them some money. So, uh, but yeah, man, overall, like the show itself is legit you know the the concept like it's not just bs they're not bringing people on there and just giving them offers just give them offers uh the traffic's real you know afterwards you know you, you get seen by five million people at one time uh the spike in sales is massive the exposure is absolutely huge uh you know we had we had eighty thousand sales when we got on the show at the six month point uh we did over 12 uh three million over the next 12 months so uh, the spike. Whoa! Wow! The show. Were was, you ready for that going in? Did you have like a huge inventory, or you had like you were back ordered for a while? Uh, so what happens too? And why I, I was a big fan of the show, and I'd always sit there and wonder why people would sell out of stock. Uh, but they only give you two weeks' notice if you're going to err or not. Um, luckily enough for me, I pretty much knew I was going to err no matter what uh, because my brothers came in on the episode, and I knew that they wanted more exposure, and they knew that. You know, my brothers came on and NFL fans and sports fans and other people would watch the show as well. So um, some people film, they don't know if they're going to actually air or not. Uh, when they do know they're going to air, it's two weeks before the, so they can't stock up an inventory. Uh, the second I closed that deal, I went home that day and I ordered um, new inventory. So uh, I ended up filming in June. I think we aired in October and um, the new product literally came the week before. Uh, before we awesome. aired. So I, I got the new stuff, new style, new bottles in stock right before we aired, uh, which was which was absolutely huge. So uh, we sold through all of our old stock, our original version of the bottle, which was amazing to get rid of like those first 10,000 that I ordered. Um, <laughs> then, you know, brought in the newer version. Uh, and I took I did all this out of my own pocket, too. So the investment hadn't come through yet. Um, I had to put all my own money in. I wanted to make sure I had inventory ready to go. I didn't want to miss the big moment. So I put all this money into it myself. I ended up putting about a quarter million into it um, before the shark t actually invested. And then, um, you know, the other thing that you see is that, you know, these massive sales come in and everyone thinks you're kind of just, just chilling, man, like you're just enjoying it. But, you know, with that, we probably 20x the business overnight. You know, that first couple of weeks or first month was more like a 50x. And uh, with that, like it was still out of the upstairs in my house at that time. So, it wasn't like this big business where I had a bunch of employees that were ready to go. It was like friends and family helped me pack boxes and pre-packed boxes. Uh, and then we just slapped labels on and did whatever we could to survive for a month. Um, and it just you know, went from there, man. Then it was, you know, now we got to find a place. Now we got to find employees. Now we got to get new products. Now we got to uh, get into retail. And all this kind of just all happened and was accelerated over, you know, really over a month period. Um, with that, like I didn't, I didn't take any money out of the company. So 
my first two and a half years in the company, we were profitable since day one. I mean, the show makes you profitable, but I was already profitable going on to the show because I wasn't spending any marketing dollars for the most place. I was just hustling everything. Uh, but two and a half years um, was the f- first time I took a penny back. Uh, so I've been just grinding for, for two and a half, down a quarter million, and uh, living off my wife's salary uh, up until that point. So uh, as awesome as the show is, uh, you know, the, the true entrepreneurs that are, are early on, that are really trying to grow the business are still, you know, even with the show, you're still going to be grinding it out for a couple of years. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point right there. A lot of people don't, you know, in entrepreneurship, right? Like you are the last one to get paid. And I know we've talked about this before on the show, but that's, you know, that's the point right there. When you're truly growing something that you want to be there for the long term, you're putting every dollar back in and you are literally the last one to take any money out, you know, and it and it's like a privilege to get to that point to be actually actually be able to start taking, you know, money out. It takes stability. You need to have enough you know, money in the, you know, in the account to cover any bullshit that might go on. You need to be able to hire employees. And then at some point, hopefully down the road, luckily, you you know, if you, everything goes well, you're able to start taking some of your initial investment back. I mean, the 250 you put in, that doesn't count the two and a half years of time, right? Exactly. That you, time. you know, that you would have been paid if you were working a regular job somewhere, you know? So like, sure. you know, that's the, the big sacrifice in entrepreneurship that makes, you know, the victory when you start to have success so sweet, you know, and makes it so worth it down the road. And the other thing he mentioned was uh, was like being profitable since day one. So a question I always wanted to ask was, how do you figure out how to price the product? Because I remember with us, with the sauce, we always went back and forth. Like, do we make it more premium? You know, do you make it a little, little more than the rest and why? And like, how do you justify it? So for you, what made you go with the price point that you're at? Because in of what I know, I think it's a little bit more of a premium compared to the rest. I think it is the most premium, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I mean, in the shaker bottle world, we are, but it's because you're comparing it to you know plastic shaker bottles for the most part. Uh, if you compare right. us to a Yeti, you know we're we're significantly cheaper. Uh, so we kind of came in in the middle. Um, I started pricing things. You know, at the beginning, it was kind of a guessing game. I had no clue what I was doing. Um, after I kind of learned what I was doing and, and how to actually run a business, you know, I started running a Keystone markup. Now, so if I was going to get it for seven fifty, I was going to I was going to wholesale it for fifteen, and they were going to retail it for thirty. Uh, so kind of um, right. times it by four, whatever your cost is. And then I realized, you know, if you really want to be successful, uh, you know, you have to have a little bit more in there for certain programs that you're going to want to throw, or you know, bring in certain reps and. Uh, you know, retail is going to absolutely crush you with different programs and sales and all that kind of stuff as well. So, you know, if you want to be successful, if you want to be a premium brand and you want to be, uh, you know, in retail as well, you got to give yourself a little bit more uh, than a Keystone markup. So uh, if you could get to to 80 margin, uh, that was kind of ideal. So um, we kept adding different features and changing different things to try to get it up a little bit more so that we'd have a little bit more room to do some more programs. Yeah, that's a great point. Your margin, you know, pricing and margin, um, you know, to be able to people think, oh, it costs you this much. You're selling it for that much. But you need to have that margin in there for different programs, like you said, in retail, which is like a whole nother animal slotting fees, all, all that stuff, um, you know, and to be able to pay all that overhead and, and sales reps and, and all that. So it's not it's not what, you know, people think it might be from the outside. And like, you know, true entrepreneurship, you have to have that, you know, to have a successful business long term, you need to have that margin in. Right. Can you talk a little bit about like the road to retail, like essentially like what made you get into it? And then when you did get into it, how was that process? Because I know there's like distributors and all sorts of different questions that that go into it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll hit on your kind of just the margin point a little bit more and I'll jump into that. But yeah, I mean, a lot of times we'll get hit with like, hey, like you're selling direct to consumer as well uh, and making all this margin there, which sometimes you think is the better route. So, um, I tried to keep it that way. I felt like retailers, you know, selling it wholesale was kind of just a waste of 50%, right. You know, giving them this massive discount. But, uh, as I got into business and I, and I really started to learn more and figure it out, I realized that, you know, there's a huge acquisition cost for each customer when you're selling directly to a customer. Uh, and we're selling a 30, $35 product and, and our acquisition cost is, you know, if we're, if we're doing really well, you know, it might be 20 bucks. Uh, if we're not doing really well, we might be paying 30, you know, 35 on a, on a product that costs yeah, that we're selling at 30 or 35 bucks plus our costs. So, huh. 
uh, you're getting you're getting crushed there. And what you're doing there is you're trying to provide uh, great service so that they come back and buy more for themselves or for a friend or family member. Um, or you're you're trying to get them to come back on customization or new products that come out. So you know it's kind of a game where it started to make more sense to then push into retail and use your retailers as an acquisition tool instead. So uh, that's kind of when I started to push into retail and realize that I could sell this bottle. You know, instead of selling it for 30, I could sell it for 15, but I have guaranteed money there. I have guaranteed, uh, you know, $7.50 there. Whereas if I'm selling it direct to the consumer, it might cost me $30 to get that consumer. And I'm essentially making zero on that first sale. Uh, so that's when we started to push into retail. Um, it started with GNC. I was lucky enough to have Mark Cuban's team connect me with GNC. I uh, worked through a deal with them. They helped me negotiate it. I had no clue what I was doing. They helped me you know, kind of write up the contract and look, what to look for, you know, on on, on fees and, um, you know, def- just all kinds of different things, you know, shipping, development fees, returns, all that kind of stuff that I just had no clue about. And, um, you know, without them on my team, I, I would have got smoked on my first deal that I did. So uh, pushed into GNC first. Uh, we did well there. Started reaching out to other retailers. Uh, we we got on with Vitamin Shop next, uh, and then started getting into some of the gyms uh, like Lifetime Fitness. Uh, more recently, Twenty Four Hour Fitness, and um, you know got got into Walmart as well. We're in half the WalMarts, and then recently I've started doing more grocery. So we just launched with with Sprouts and all the Sprouts locations uh, this month actually. So uh, retail still isn't isn't huge. Um, we do sell a lot of wholesale to smaller mom and pops like nutrition shops and CrossFit gyms and stuff like that. But, uh, a bulk of our stuff now is, is really more corporate. Uh, we have the ability to laser engrave, uh, so we can make items for really any event. It could be a golf event. It could be, um, a rally for, for some employees. Uh, it can be customer gifts. It, it could really come down to anything. Um, a bottle can be used for, so we do a lot of different corporate events now at this point as well. Yeah, that's a good point. So actually, this one right here was given to us as a gift from our friends over at Evo Boston. <laughs> and then Nutra, thank you. Nutra had it too. I think that's a that was a huge. Yeah, I wouldn't say like maybe like even like an unlock for you guys. What made you say okay, let's go into the customization game? Because again, it's a it's a whole different game, and it opens up a whole new world of, again, like this yeah. more gifting corporate mm-hmm. companies like Nutre, because I know we ordered, I think, like a 150 or 200 or something. For sure. What got you guys into that? Uh, so it was the, the business Smart. I was doing with my wife before this. Uh, so for five years, we were doing customized gifts. Um, it was something that she started when I was still playing in the NFL. And when I stopped playing, I joined her for five years, and we built it up to a point where I was making more money than my NFL career was. So... Uh, very wow. successful business oh, as well. Um, learned really quickly that if you can personalize a gift and get it out the door quickly, uh, people really appreciated it. And they would organically tell friends they would order again when they were stuck and needed a gift at the last minute. And uh, we did we did really, really well with, with pretty much no marketing spend um, at all just because we delivered such a good service and a good product. So uh, we took that same mentality into Ice Shaker and just said, you know, let's try it. Let's, let's see how it goes. I, I really didn't know how far it would reach and realize how popular bottles were in this kind of promo corporate space. But, um, found out really quickly that they're used for almost every event. Like there's some kind of bottle in, in pretty much every gift bag that you get, uh, when you go to an event. So, uh, it quickly became a, a huge revenue source for us. And, uh, we're doing, we're doing thousands of custom bottles at this point a week. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. And then, how, cause, cause it's also a logistics game. Think about that. You have to create a, like a tech system or like a website that can take in these logos and these engravings and the color schemes and all that. And then from, then it has to go straight to the engraver, like wherever that is, whether it's in the States or outside the state. That's like a pretty complex process. And we're doing it ourselves, um, as well. So we right. call it customization. So yeah, it's almost two businesses in one. Um, you could almost break it out like that, but. No other companies, for the most part, want to take that on because it is. It's kind of like a completely separate uh, business that you're running. So uh, because we do it, we control it. Uh, we get it out quick. And so a lot of our orders are going out uh, same day, next day, within three to five business days. Uh, and we can do thousands of bottles same week at, at this point. So um, it's a huge advantage, especially because people love to wait to the last minute. 
and then scramble for a gift idea uh, or something to hand out to customers or employees or at an event. So uh, a lot of times we'll get a, an email on a Monday saying I have an event on a Friday, you know, that Friday, can I, can I get some items? And the fact that we can get them to them wins us so many orders and wins us so much repeat business as well. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, a, that's a great niche. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, again, that's that's how Nutrite was became a client. And that's how I know like ANC Peter, we're very, very close with him. I know he slings a ton and a lot yeah. of it's because of the branding and the different variety and colored bottles. I know there's like Army, there's so many color variations, which is again, it's huge to have that customization is huge. Absolutely. It's been a, a huge game changer for us for sure. I got a question real quick about Shark Tank. When they run reruns, do you see like automatic hits? Like orders when reruns run? Because yeah. I literally watch the reruns all the time. Yeah, it's it's uh, the gift that keeps on giving. So um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's there's times where I'll just go on our website and I'm like, what happened today? And um, you know, it's three, four thousand hits to our website. It's probably similar to Amazon as well. Uh, and people are watching the rerun. They're they're seeing it, they're going. A lot of times they're more curious just to see like, hey, is this company still up? Are they still running? Let's kind of see where they're at today. Uh, but it does drive sales as well, and it drives a lot of sales. And a lot of times it actually drives uh, people to the site who get interested and then buy later as well. So uh, we love Shark Tank reruns. That We get rerun uh, probably more than anyone because we actually have an update as well. Uh, at one year into it, we had a one-year update on how Ice Shaker was doing. And um, oh. that we now have two reruns. So we have the initial airing, and then we have the, the update re-air as well that that hits as well so the initial one always does better uh the rear generates probably about half as many views as um you know that initial uh show that we did so that the, the follow-up show does about half as much that's awesome and then you had mark and a rod you said right yep mark and a rod invested in the company uh we had offers from all five close with mark and a rod and then um mark is still a part of the company and and alex was bought out by my brother rob about two years into it hmm that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Did you go in there knowing that you wanted to be with Mark? And what was the off? What was the deal, by the way? Like, what what, what were you looking for? Yes, yeah, so was it in, the deal um, that you want? Yeah, I, I was asking for a, a million dollar uh, evaluation at that time. We had about eighty thousand in sales, and we were six months into it, so um, didn't know if I'd get a million. Uh, ended up getting that valuation. Um, ended up closing the deal at fifteen percent for one hundred fifty k with the, with the two sharks. But yeah, I definitely wanted Mark. Um, and then Alex was just kind of this, this big question mark, you know, this was 2017, uh, he was kind of you know, like blackballed from the MLB still at that point. Um, and right. no yeah. he was doing like he, he, you know, was this real estate, um, you know, company, I guess. And, and that was kind of like the only information that you could find out about him. And it was the first time he was going to be on the show. So it wasn't like I could go back and get a read on him based on past episodes. You know, it was a complete guess, um, with having him come on board i see yeah that's right i mean at that time right 2000 he was a you know like you said blackballed at that time right was he still playing or was he retired no he was retired at that point um it was kind of right before he started really rebuilding his his brand uh and his image yeah. so it was kind of at his lowest point um and then you know <laughs> they kind of brought him back alive then he started announcing and he started dating j-lo and um you know he really brought himself back for sure. And that was helping the company as well. And uh, at that same time, Rob retired and wanted to get more into the business world and, and thought it would be a good idea to, uh, you know, get some shares in Ice Shaker, which uh, was a very good idea. And he's, he's done really well on his investment. Hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. Speaking I, of Rob retiring, you know, you retired, left us, right? And then went to Tampa and just cleaned it up. Right, like what a move that was. Better weather went with Tom. Think about that. Also. I'd like to get the details behind the scenes, but I won't put you on the spot for that. But you know what the hell? You know, I was so disgusted at the time as a fan. You know, but you know. I don't think he could survive, man. I mean, it's the Belichick way. Um, you know, I played for four different organizations, and every organization I went into that had veteran players, you know, they they gave them days off, like they took care of their vets and. When you play in the Patriot way, uh, no matter how many injuries you have, you know you're treated the same way. You know, it doesn't matter uh, what age you are, how many injuries you have. Bill's going to treat you like you're a rookie as well, and everyone's going to be treated the same way. So, uh, obviously, it's worked. 
obviously, um, you know, you leave and you have a lot of respect for Bill when you leave. But uh, when you're there as an older player, it's it's a beatdown, man. And uh, when you have eight, nine surgeries uh, and you're, you're in your ninth year, you know, it's, it's tough to keep on going. You know, that's a great point. I didn't I didn't realize yeah. like it was that was a thing. But I remember like, even when I played in college on my senior year, like I'm like, I'm not even going to practice anymore. Like I'm just going to show up like on the Friday walkthrough and then play in the game on Saturday. <laughs> I, and that was a senior in Division three college. I couldn't imagine being like a, you know, a Hall of Fame, like tight end at the end of the <laughs> career, like after all those surgeries. I'd be I like, know, especially, come being, on, especially being as good as he was. You're talking about it. I mean, dude, come a on. Generational yeah. player. I mean, it's just a real deal. I mean, you know, the play, um, the playbook hadn't changed either. It wasn't like he's going in there like, oh, I need to get on the same page with my new quarterback. Like, you know, these guys, yeah, are, exactly. these guys are eight years in, man. Like, you don't need to practice full pads on a Wednesday. And, and guys didn't. You know, when I, was, when I was with the Chargers, you know, Antonio Gates isn't out there on a Wednesday. You know, full pads going hard, blocking on the line, man. He's, he's taking the day off or he's running out there. He's catching a few pat and goes and he's, and he's hanging out. So, um you, know, you just can't recharge and you can't get healthy when you're taking that kind of a beating every day, no matter no matter what you do in the offseason. You know, especially later on in his career, like Rob 100% focused on getting as healthy as he could in the offseason. Uh, obviously, that wasn't the case early on, uh, but later in his career, like that was a huge focus of his with you know, massages and treatments and, and really eating the right way, uh, eating the best he could. You know, he's doing some of the TB12 stuff. Uh, to really take himself to that next level and come in as healthy as he possibly could be, but it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, football is an, it's an absolute beatdown, and you can't protect yourself when you're blindsided. You know, you, you can't protect yourself from you know, taking shots to the knees, unfortunately. So, uh, you know, you're going to get beat up no matter what, no matter who you are, and you need time to recover and rest. Speaking of that, Chris, talk a little bit about your college career in football and, and then your NFL career. I mean. There's sports and business. There, there is some sort of correlation. Like it does build like these habits, this competitive nature, this kind of go-getter, self-sustainable mentality. Um, talk a little bit about like how, how your how your college career went, and then how it transitioned to your uh, professional career. For sure, yeah. Um, you know, I was I was always the underdog. Um, you know, smallest in my family, shortest. I uh, had to be the strongest kind of guy. You know, just put in the work all day, every day. So I got a last-minute scholarship to the University of Maryland. I played, uh, well, I redshirted, and I played a season, and, um, you know, just felt like I was never really supposed to be there. Uh, head coach walked by me in the hallway and would turn his head the other way. And I'm like, man, <laughs> you know, that's messed up. So, that was the worst feelings. Um, was backup, backup, you know, so that was a goal-line fullback. So it was the second-string fullback at the time. I missed one practice. My coach told me I'd never play for him again. And you know, at that point, I decided to transfer and, and try to find a better opportunity for myself. So went to the University of Arizona. Uh, Rob came a semester later. I tried out for the baseball team. I played one season. Uh, we were preseason number one in the nation. I had zero chance of playing on that team. Uh, rode the bench for a season and, and got back to football once I was eligible again. And um, I went in there thinking uh, you know, I'd play fullback and maybe get a couple plays a game. After the first game, I played about 12 to 15 snaps and had a great game. The next game, I was playing 30 snaps. The next game, I was playing 40 snaps. And all of a sudden, I had a chance to actually go to the next level uh, and play at the NFL level. So I never thought it would actually happen. Still thought there was no chance for me. So um, I tried to get the best degree I could. Figured I'd get a free college out of it at least. I got, got into the business school. I was one of two football players in the entire business school. And I got an accounting degree thinking, you know, at least I'll have something leaving that could make me a decent amount of money and um with summer school that we had to take uh yeah i'd have close to 150 credits coming out of college and i could apply for the cpa exam and possibly do that and make some good money so that was kind of my plans man uh had one shot one chance one opportunity to make it as an undrafted free agent with the cowboys ended up making it starting that season um catching a touchdown my first game and i was lucky enough then to start for two other teams and uh walked out of the nfl Four years into it, uh, pension, retirement, um, not a millionaire by any means, but a good chunk of money in my bank account that then allowed me to start my own business. Uh, so, you know, the things you learn are, you know, you do, you learn that grit, man, that hard work. You you learn how to wake up early, put your time in, um, you know, mentally really grind it out as well. Uh, and you take that into the business world and uh, the skills of everyday skills of, um, you know, catching a pass and hitting guys are completely worthless. 
but that mental game, that mental toughness that you learned is, is invaluable to, to allow you to go into business and just, you know, take an absolute beating, uh, especially at the beginning, and then just keep fighting back. Dude, to make a roster on an NFL team is ridiculous. Like, especially, as a, especially as like a fullback tight end hybrid. You, you know, know like there's like a underdog style. Like to make a team, dude, is like I think sometimes like like the third string D lineman on Alabama, right, is like six six, like runs monster, like a four four, right, and like they're not getting drafted, like they're not making teams, like so, like to if you look around, like all these like studs and like not right. many of them make it, like only a few select few. So to make a to make a roster for four years, dude, is Right. Is an incredible 53, achievement. Or, 53 or, or how about how about going to the University of Arizona and trying to be disciplined, or like trying to like you know you're talking about one of the biggest party schools oh, in the in the world with the most beautiful women in the world at that age, playing at that stage. I love how like that's where your mind goes right yeah. away. Dude. I didn't even think about that for a second. Yeah, but how did we? we University of Arizona. You have This is the biggest no, place for the best looking girls on the planet. That's not the first it's, place it I a went. Fact. It's yeah. definitely a fact. That's, that's kudos fact, there, and that's facts. You got to get through that too. I mean, I tell people all the time, I mean, a lot of it too is yeah, I was, I was one of the last to survive, man. Like as an NFL player, the talent gets weeded out pretty quickly just from high school because they can't make grades. You know, you've got to make it to college. You're not like an NBA player or, or an MLB player where you can get drafted, uh, you know, right to the league. So you got to go to college. So you have to get into college. You have to pass the SAT. You have to have the grades to get in. Once you get there, you know, you got to go to class. Like you actually have to pass and, and get through that as well because you got to be in school for at least three years to make it to the NFL to be eligible for the draft. Uh, and then from there, man, it's injuries. You know, it's injuries. You know, people get hurt every single day in their season ending. Their their season is over. And then, you know, sometimes their career is over as well. And then, um, you know, the last thing that a lot of people don't see, and it comes into effect, man, big time when you get to the NFL. But, you know, you see a guy that goes first round. He's a first round talent and uh, never plays in the NFL. And everyone sits there and they shake their head and they say, you know, this guy was so good in college. Why can't he play in the NFL level? And it really comes down to the playbook. You know, these scouts are, they're grading guys out based on talent. In college, man, like a lot of the times it's like, hey, the play is, yeah, I'm going to hold up a sign and you know what to do. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you to run to that hole and hit that hole. And you're talented enough to beat everyone out there because you're that good of a player. But when you get to the NFL, it's not that, man. It's, you know, I'm going to walk up to the line. I'm going to have to know the play I'm running. I'm going to have to know what the line's doing, where they're shifting to. I'm going to have to know what to do when they're blitzing. I'm going to have to know what he, what to do when they audible it as well. Uh, and I got to know, you know, as I walk up there, if this guy steps up here and the other guy steps up here, where do I go? Who do I block? So, you know, there's just so much that comes with it that when you see a first-round talent not play in the NFL, it's not because he's not good enough. It's because he can't pick up that playbook and be trusted on the NFL field. So uh, that weeds a lot of guys out too. So um, overall, like, if you can do everything right, not get in trouble, pass grades, stay healthy, and then learn the playbook, you know, you're going to be, you're going to have a, a lot better chance at least to, to actually play at that next level. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think a lot of how I got there was because I just did all the right things um, at the right times and I knew my plays and I could be trusted as well. So uh, special teams was huge. You know, I had to play all four special teams. A lot of guys refused to play special teams in college because they just thought they were too good for it. So just try to do everything I could to make sure that I had some kind of value, even if I wasn't stepping on the field as a fullback. You know, another thing that, that people don't talk about as much is the transition from being an athlete your entire life to then boom, it's done. And then you have to like be a, a working professional. Did you, How was your, your transition with that? I know some people struggle with you know, I was an NFL player for X amount of years, and all of a sudden now I'm not labeled as an NFL player now. I'm labeled as a normal person. I'm just a normal guy walking in the streets. Did you have any troubles on that transition? Man, a lot of guys do uh, struggle for years yeah. trying to figure out what to do next. A lot of guys have enough money where they yeah. don't have to do anything. But, um, you know, you miss, you miss that grind every day. You miss that challenge. You miss that purpose. So um, a lot of teammates hit me up and are like, man, what are you doing? How'd you transition out? Luckily, uh, my wife had started that business that I was talking about before, and I jumped into it, and I was waking up at 5 a.m. and working till 10 p.m., and I was just grinding it out. Um, you know, we were custom engraving out of our own house, so I knew that every minute I was engraving, I was making money, and so I just kept doing it. And, um, you know, when you stay busy and when you have other goals, it's easy to kind of put your past behind you and move on. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's a good advice, I guess. Yeah, that's great advice. It was great insight into the NFL, too, like the knowing the playbook. Yeah, I was I, so, uh, the whole time you were talking, I was thinking, like, am I an idiot? I couldn't pick up the playbook in high school at you all. You couldn't? Was, <laughs> that uh, was my thing, dude. I could fucking, I could tell you what everybody was doing. I was a left tackle. I, I mean, could dude, tell I, you what, like, I, I've, hung, was I've hung out with a lot of athletes, you know, professional athletes and stuff. And, and you can see it. Like, football IQ is a very serious yeah. thing. I was going to bring up, because as you were saying that, all I could think about was Nikhil. Don't say it. I yeah, I don't, I don't want to say it. Yeah, he's close with him. But, like, he was so good in college. So good. Oh, he's an Arizona guy, too. Yeah, he was. Running back, right? No, he was a receiver. Oh, a receiver? He was a first for me. Patriots drafted him first round. No, he's Arizona State. He was Arizona State. State. Yeah, Arizona State. Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. Which yeah, he was a stud, dude. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he was a sun devil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a beast. He was so good, dude. Like, so we're like, why isn't he getting playing time? Why aren't they throwing the ball? And now I, I think that makes sense. Exactly what you're saying. Like, this guy was head and shoulders like the best. Well, I mean, he was dude, huge. His plays yeah. in, in in college, I'm like, dude, this guy is going to be the next Randy Moss, you know? And uh, it makes exact, it makes perfect sense what you said. Yeah, you can't. You can't so be let's go. Not in the right spot. The right. No, you couldn't exactly. be trusted with the playbook. Exactly. And Bill's yeah. like, buddy, if, you're not, if I can't trust you, you're you're out. You're not playing. You're riding pine. So, what is the future for um, for Ice Shaker? Like, what's the next steps in business? Like, where do you want to take this thing? How far do you want to take it? Yeah, man. Um, we're always taking next steps. We've grown every year since since Shark Tank. Um, one really cool thing we have coming is is all leagues, all teams for licensing for sports. Uh, so we'll come out with a yeah. of uh, NFL bottles. It took me six and a half years to get the NFL licensing. So um, we're doing it through a partner uh, with Fanatics and super excited to launch that later in this year. Uh, hopefully this year. We'll see, man. Everything seems to take longer than normal. But um, tell people all the time, you know, we've sold millions of bottles at this point. Uh, you can walk down the street from my own warehouse and ask 10 people what Ice Shaker is. And I'll be lucky if one person knows what we are. So um, I don't think we really need to bring in new products i think we need to just keep digging deeper on what we currently have and um just continue to do a great job uh with our customers that we currently have but with all of our new ones and just um you know keep saturating the market that we're currently in so that's that's kind of our game plan for now we released a ton of new products this year we released jugs we have a speaker bottle we did a sports bottle like i mean we've done so many different products at this point and really, when it comes down to it, you know, our main products, our main, our main seller still, you know, that that twenty six ounce shaker bottle, uh, that design is is by far our top seller. It's what people know us for, and we got to continue just doing a great job of getting that product out there. Are you are you doing a lot of stuff like influencer marketing stuff too, or just traditional paid ads like Facebook, Google, all that? Uh, we don't do much Google. We do a lot of Facebook, uh, Instagram. Um, we do some influencer stuff. Uh, it's more higher commission based. Like I'd rather. Pay someone a high commission for actually selling the product instead of just paying someone big money up front to um, you know make right. a video that doesn't sell anything for us. Uh, right. We are able to really partner up and do some cool stuff with influencers because of the customization aspects. So yeah, we can put their their logo on it. We can allow them to kind of create their own little shop on our website where they're selling their own custom products and making money on them and building their own brand uh, without cool. having to carry any inventory at all. So. With the customization side of it, we just can do so many things that other brands can't do, and we could offer this to our influencers as well. And are you guys doing like drop shipping style stuff, or is it coming out of? We'll do that. Like as your... well. Yeah, we'll do both. Yeah, uh, we'll drop ship for them as well. Um, some people will buy bulk and send it out themselves, but uh, different partners, you know, like a bodybuilding.com, will drop ship for. Um, we'll sometimes we'll drop ship and they'll fulfill themselves. Just depends on how the companies want to do it. Uh, so yeah, we're we're still small um, and, and agile, man. So we're people tell us all the time, you're the easiest company we've ever worked with, um, and, and that's why we just keep on growing as well. It's amazing. Congratulations on the NFL uh, licensing thing. That's that's it's massive. Huge, that's yeah, a, yeah pump, that's man. We have some first, first for you guys. prototypes that came out, and they're they're awesome. I'm rocking some of them myself because they're they're so cool looking. Yeah, hell yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. I'm so excited. That's awesome. Chris, what do you think was one of the biggest like key unlocks or like key hires? Because like always along, there's always a point where it comes where you're like, shit, I I can't do everything by myself, right? I need this one person to elevate. Did you have like a key hire that was like, okay, that was a unlock for us? Yeah, there's. I mean, I have three three main guys right now that run kind of the three branches for us. So you know, marketing, operations, and then sales. 
Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the, the three that I report to and talk to all day, every day. So um, all three of them play a, a massive role. And then they also all run their own divisions as well. So uh, those three are huge. My, my ultimate unlock was probably, you know, my dad's advice of kind of, you know, budget forecast game plan. You know, what, what are you going to make this year? My dad could tell you right now before the, the year even starts next year how much he's going to make next year uh, and come really close to it because, you know, he's been in business for 30 years. He's going to put, you know, a, a full uh, projection down on paper and, and break it down and he's going to know exactly how much margin he's making and how many employees he has and what kind of risks he's taking. And he's going to pretty much tell me what he's going to make next year before it even happens. So that was one thing that he, he showed me how to do with my business. Uh, and then... You know, it really helped me also segment it into different divisions in my own company. Uh, it was kind of an unlock when he was like, hey, um, let's break this down into four pillars for your company. You know, how much does your sales team make for you? And then, you know, how much does corporate make for you? And then, you know, the biggest one for me was how much, how much does your warehouse and operations lose? And I was like, well, what do you mean? Like, that's just, you know, what, what is that? Like, why, what are you going to do with that? He's like, well, the whole idea of that is to minimize costs. You know, these are profit centers. These are loss centers. How do you maximize the profit? How do you minimize the loss center and break them down and split them apart? And, you know, kind of took my, my business and said, you know, laser engraving is completely separate. How much are you making on it? And I had no clue at the time. You know, I had no clue that we were profiting a lot more off these bigger wholesale accounts than we were B2C uh, because in my mind, we were selling so much more B2C that it looked like a more, uh, you know, favorable thing to go after. So uh, that was about three years into the company. Uh, we started really breaking it down, budget, forecast, uh, you know, game plan. And you know, from that point on, um, you know, that year we three extra profit. Uh, so just a, a really big unlock for us. And the last thing that he taught me was just incentivizing each and every employee um, as a team. You know, that was the big thing that he kept emphasizing to me was, you know, this is just like if you want it to be just like a locker room, everyone has to have goals that help each other win together as a team. So uh, we started implementing team goals instead of individual goals. And when we did, it was absolutely incredible. Um, you know, the, the sales team started working with the marketing team and started working with the operations team as well to really maximize everything that we were doing. You know, previously, um, the culture in the company was, you know, a sales guy would come in, uh, he'd put this big order in. The order, you know, might not be favorable at all to operations. Uh, in fact, it was probably going to suck. They had to change out lids. Some bottles were sold out operations team had to scramble and, and fix all these things with the order and do whatever they could to then also rush it out the door because, you know, the sales rep promised two day shipping or whatever it was. And so it was just a complete disaster. And, you know, this big order would come in and everyone would be pissed. Uh, we changed it. We incentivized everything as a team. And after that, big orders would come in and literally everyone would be excited. You know, they would be hitting each other up and, and celebrating. And um, it's just such a different feel. That's sick. What do you mean by team goals? Like, like just, like Marks, sales, like so, yeah, basically, total, like total. if we got sales, then the, like the guy, the warehouse guys are incentivized. Like yeah, like bonuses. Yeah, so I mean, the the easiest example um, I, I tell people is you know our operations team, for instance. So we're we're doing you know thousands of bottles a week that we're sending out of our warehouse. Uh, a lot of them are customized as well. So uh, in the past, if someone made a mistake, it would just be like, "Man, what are you doing? Let's write this guy up." You know. Uh, he needs to pay better attention. Let's bring him to the office and, you know, kind of give him a warning. Uh, after three times, you know, my team would come to me and say, man, this is third strike. Do you want to fire him? And I'm like, well, not really, man. It took me three months to train this guy. He's actually a great employee, but you know, sometimes he's not paying attention. So, you know, let's figure out something different. So we put this goal in team goal. Uh, it's a team pot actually, where each bottle that goes out the door, we assign a value to it. Uh, I think we do 10 or 12 cents, something like that. Uh, it's a pot for all the employees that are a part of the operations. At the end of the month, if there's mistakes, the mistakes come out of the pot. So if a big mistake comes in, say they, they mess up 100 bottles, the cost of that mistake comes out of that pot. So uh, it might completely take away the entire pot for the month if they make a big, big mistake. So all nine employees that we currently have doing operations uh, would lose all that extra money that they would have got that month because one person made a mistake and they didn't check the order. Um, so instead of writing them up, you know, people would now lose this extra bonus that they could have got. Uh, and it started holding people accountable as a team. You know, they, other eight would get pissed uh, because they just lost, you know, a decent chunk of money that would have been in their pocket. And that person that makes the mistake, it's kind of like on the NFL field, man. Like you drop a pass and you could have scored a touchdown. 
you know, you you feel you feel terrible. You're going to pay attention. You're going to work harder. You're going to study the plays. You're going to make sure you do it right. The same thing started happening uh, with my team as well. And after that, we had such minimum amount of mistakes that even though we were paying everybody more money, we were actually saving money in the long run, and our employees were making more money. So um, the people that kept making mistakes, they eventually just quit. You know, they they kind of felt the pressure from the other employees. Uh, not like our employees were hounding them or like getting after them, but it's kind of like, yo, know, a team, you know, you drop that pass, your teammates say, Hey, you know, better luck next time. You know, uh, you know, don't worry about it kind of thing, but you still worry about it. You know, you made a mistake. You know, you let the team down Keep doing that. You know, eventually you're like, man, maybe this is just isn't for me. And, and these people step down and walk away. So, uh, it completely changed the culture of our company. And, um, like at times, I walk in now and it's like, you just feel like you're walking back into that locker room with a bunch of people that are all there for the same reason. And that's to win. Dude, that's incredible. That's, I love that so much. That's awesome. That's an unlock I, for us. I, I wrote down like, I'm, I have ideas running through my head. We absolutely are going to take something away from that. So that's two big takeaways, right? So we got yeah. forecast, budget, and game plan, right? That's all, fo- all from football. Yeah, exactly. That <laughs> goes back to your point, right? Like team in, culture, right? It's literally a it's a team sport, right? The so other, you got that, and then also you have the team, uh, the team incentives. That those are two great takeaways. I think one of the coolest things about business and talking to like other entrepreneurs, whether it's like in our personal lives or through this podcast, is a lot of the baseline foundation the shit that Dad's been telling us our whole lives is the same, from an ice shaker bottle to meals to this to that. Like a lot of the foundational components are the same. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in all all good businesses. Yeah, businesses, right? Exactly. But you like can you can apply that to anything. You can apply what he just taught us here into any one of our businesses, and all the, any listeners who have a business could apply that same principle, right? Pretty much to anything. You know, right. great conversation today with Chris Gronkowski. I mean, we learned a shitload. That unlocked there at the end. We're going to implement those things right away. Uh, ton of respect for Chris and his family and everything that they're doing. They're not just uh, like the jocks that they think about. They're all really smart people, great business minds. Uh, I hope you learned a lot from this episode, and we will see you next time.